This morning's sermon is entitled, Wired for Pleasure. Ecclesiastes chapter 2. We'll be looking in just a moment at verses 1 through 11. Our key words for our worshipers in training are joy, toil, and self. In the uh, 1600s, there was a French mathematician slash physicist slash inventor slash theologian. He was a child prodigy. He was a genius. His name was Blaise Pascal. And famously, he stated, All men seek happiness. This is without exception. Whatever different means they employ, they all tend to this end. The cause of some going to war and of others avoiding it is the same desire in both, attended with different views. The will never takes the least step but to this object. This is the motive of every action of every man, even those who hang themselves. I agree wholeheartedly with Pascal. Every motive, every action of all mankind has the same starting point. And that is our own personal happiness, joy, satisfaction. That is the same starting point that all of us have in everything that we do. In our jobs, in our recreation, in our vacations, in our hobbies. Everything we do is a means to that which we all desire, which is pleasure. Even, as Pascal pointed out, the man who hangs himself. He could not find pleasure in this life, so perhaps fulfillment is found in death instead. Now, I want to argue that you and I are wired by God for pleasure. This is not a foreign concept, I don't believe, in the Bible. In fact, it's everywhere. The Scriptures are full of commands to rejoice, to delight, to be joyful. But as I say that, we very quickly see the problem with this in our lives. While this is... While this is the very thing that we're wired for and we spend all of our efforts pursuing, very seldom, if ever, do we actually sense that we've arrived at it. So our striving after pleasure, our striving after joy becomes about more and bigger and better and more exotic and more luxurious and more risque and bigger events, bigger experiences, better this, better that becomes our mantra. Now this is the very thing that the entire advertising industry for the most part is built upon. It can be as simple as convincing us that we need not make homemade pizza, which may be good, but why eat that when you could save an hour and an entire mess and just throw our amazing pizza in the oven and have it done in 20 minutes and fool everyone and tell them you made it. 
to car ads, to real estate ads, to clothing, electronics, sports equipments, even now to where your vacations are just lame. Whatever you do, it's lame because it's not doing this, whatever that is. And believe it or not, there are even now entire resorts and travel agencies and industries built around and even unashamedly called hedonism. There are resorts called hedonism. You can only imagine what those places are like and what happens there. So everything around us seems to be geared toward manufacturing pleasure. And the philosophy of our day very much mirrors that of the 5th century B.C. It's the Greek philosophy of the Cyreniacs and the Epicureans. To them, religion was a fear of future punishment of sin. And well, that's a burden. And that ruins the enjoyment of this present life. So instead, they advocated and basked in anything and everything that brought pleasure to their five senses with no concern whatsoever for the consequences. Gordon Clark wrote a history of philosophy and remarked that their carelessness about consequences produced, well, it produced consequences that were diametrically opposed to their pleasure-seeking. He wrote, their motto should be, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we shall have gout, cirrhosis of the liver, and delirium tremens. Now, you only need open one magazine... Pay attention to the billboards on one road trip. Watch one three-minute series of commercials to draw the conclusion that this is all around us. And the results of it have not changed one bit. And in fact, most of us, if we're honest, can attest to the ruin in our own lives and the failed pursuits of pleasure in gratifying our senses. I think all of us can admit that we'd be sickened and we'd be ashamed if others truly knew the depths of this in our hearts, every single one of us. Now, how's that for an ad campaign? Buy our product. It will leave you empty and unfulfilled in the end, just like everything else you own. But it's pretty cool. So you get the point. This is the air we breathe. And it's important then that we pay attention to Solomon in the book of Ecclesiastes. In chapter 1, I introduced you to him last week and his conclusion about life in this world under the sun after he had indulged every single one of his senses to the hilt. And we're going to look at some of those this morning. His conclusion in the end is that all is vanity. It's meaningless. And then we saw Solomon sent out to prove this by explaining all of his pursuits and what they resulted in. So Solomon lived a life of experimentation. He ran one experiment after the other to find meaning in life. And this is where it becomes very important for us to pay attention to the lives of others, to learn from others and their failures and their sins and their ignorance that we might not walk in the same manner. So Solomon is doing and explaining an experiment for us to pay attention to. 
And his experiment goes well beyond anything that any of us are capable of, if for no other reason because of the resources that he had at his disposal. Solomon uses his wealth, his power, his influence, and it's beyond what you or I could ever imagine. And he runs through everything that he can possibly think of that might bring meaning into his life to fill a longing and an emptiness that was surely there. So we ended chapter 1 looking at the first experiment that he went through, and that was seeking wisdom and knowledge, that he thought education and knowledge is key. Great wisdom is the key to fulfillment and happiness and joy in this life. So he set out to know all that could be known, the finest of fines, the lowest of lows, and he concluded, we saw in verse 18, for in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases Sorrow. So he concluded, the more I know, the more sorrow I experience, the deeper I fall. So knowledge and wisdom was not the key to unlock life's meaning. So Solomon began to look elsewhere. Let's look at verse 1 of chapter 2. I said in my heart, come now. I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. So Solomon is about to explain what he did as he sought to find meaning in his life. Lasting fulfillment in having a good time. He took on very much the spirit of our day. If it feels good, then do it. Do whatever makes you happy. The problem is that happiness wasn't what he found. He said this also was vanity. So he's going to go on and explain what he did specifically. Verse 2, I said of laughter, it is mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine. My heart still guided me with wisdom and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. So Solomon is going to use all his resources, all of his time, all of his energy, all of his knowledge, all of his creativity to consume as much earthly pleasure as is humanly possible on this earth. And he does. So the first thing he does is he begins to throw these epic parties with the best entertainment, the best food, the best wine, and thousands upon thousands of people. Now this isn't just on his birthday, this isn't on holidays, but this is every single day. Every day. We read last week in 1 Kings chapter 4 what these parties required. In one day, for one party, 220 liters of flour, 440 liters of meal, 10 fat oxen, 20 free-range cattle, 100 sheep, and it says not to mention the deer, gazelles, roebucks, and fattened fowl. So we're talking enough food for 25 to 50,000 people every single day. So that blows that little bash that you had at your parents' house in high school when they were out of town clear out of the water. 
Those frat parties you went to in college are not even JV. They're more like middle school basketball C team that I played on. Those resemble more of maybe what was going on in one room of one house at one of Solomon's parties. He did it as big as big could go. So what did all that include? Well, the first thing he mentions in verse 2 is laughter. Mark Twain wrote, Against the assault of laughter, nothing can stand. And the world has very much taken this perspective. Most certainly, laughter has so often been sought after as the opiate of the soul, but most often it ends up not as a strong defense as Twain suggests, but rather hollow and empty and trite. Sinclair Ferguson, commenting on this, said, The pleasures of laughter can also be the gratification of cruelty even expression of hatred or jealousy. But most of the time, the truth is that laughter is simply empty. Watch even a clean comedy. Compare the after effect with that of watching a tragedy. Comedy is light. Tragedy is weighty. Comedy is superficial. But a good tragedy is able to produce a catharsis of the emotions, like a medicine that cleanses pollutants out of the system and makes it function properly again. Douglas Wilson wrote, Humor under the sun can only keep its sense of humor through a blind foolishness. Now, interestingly, G.K. Chesterton observed that while it most certainly took place... He was a man, but there is no recorded incidence anywhere in the scriptures of Jesus laughing. In him we see pity, we see compassion, we see love, we see weeping, we see pain, but we see nowhere an indication of laughter. Now, I don't believe that means he didn't laugh. I think that he did. But the point is that in Jesus, we find a very satisfied man and none of the satisfaction of him came simply because of laughter. None of this to say that laughter is wrong or sinful. But the question is, is this a means of lasting satisfaction? Solomon says it is mad. It is no prescription for lasting joy. And yet, sadly, all around us we see a lack of any real sense of weightiness and seriousness about this life and more significantly the life that is yet to come. So lasting joy is not measured in decibels of laughter. The relentless pursuit of merriment that seeks to solve the problem of boredom and meaninglessness, and it only really serves to do the opposite. A constant striving after laughter seems to have led to a constant state of depression. Life must have more meaning than what is portrayed in a comedy routine. 
This is the conclusion that Solomon drew. So then he turned to wine. We see in verse 3, I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine. Now, Psalm 104.15 makes very clear that wine is a gift from God to make the heart glad. It is for our enjoyment. But, like so many other things that God has given us to enjoy, man has frequently sought to fill his longings for joy in the gift and not the giver of that gift. So Solomon sought solace in wine. He wanted stimulation from a depressant. And notice, because I I think our tendency might be as we read this to think, well, no wonder he's writing what he's writing. The dude is drunk and hung over all the time. But he makes very clear that he was no lush. He was, he wrote, still guided with wisdom. In other words, he didn't lose his mind to alcohol, but he certainly indulged beyond his fair share. Now we need to understand the problem as Ecclesiastes presents it. If a thoughtful man looks all around the world and sees it as it is, the only logical conclusion is indeed that, as Bob Dylan stated so poignantly, everybody must get stoned. So in the end, Solomon realizes it didn't work to fulfill his longings. But if life is as meaningless under the sun as he has presented it, it was an understandable thing to try. Might as well. Remember 1 Corinthians 15, we looked at a few weeks ago, the Apostle Paul picks up on this line of reasoning. If Christ did not raise from the dead... We have no hope. So the most sensible thing to do is to eat and drink and have a good time. As good of a time as a meaningless makeup of microorganisms can have because it doesn't last very long. So enjoy it while you're here. Tomorrow, it's gone. And so if all of life has to do with nothing more than what's under the sun, moderation and sobriety make very little sense at all. And so Solomon shows us by his own life that wine is as empty as the the drunkard's bottle when employed to find meaning of true joy. It simply does not work. Douglas Wilson noted, Many have sought to find some kind of meaning for life through the ingestion of various substances. Whether this better living through chemistry approach comes through liquid, smoke, needles, or straw, the result is always a vacuum. A fool will always find various ways to dig his way down, but when he gets there, he is always at the bottom of a hole. Good food, good coffee, good wine are all headed toward the same place, which is most, in most cases is the sewage treatment plant. And as a substitute... For transcendent meaning, food performs just as poorly as wine. And yet in every culture, flailing after meaning, snobbery with regard to the best restaurants is always a key player. 
Okay, so Solomon is here saying, I've thrown enormous parties. I've laughed my head off and I've drank enough wine to fill an ocean and I am still not pleased. I have found no meaning. So what's next? Verse 4, I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. So Solomon begins to put the party scene behind him and now engages in some building projects and yard yard work, to put it very lightly. It's estimated that it took 14 years to build one of Solomon's houses. Notice in verse 4, he wrote houses, plural. Also planted vineyards, gardens, parks, fruit trees, pools. Hey, Solomon, what are you going to do with uh, that thousand acres over there? Um... How about a 12,000-square-foot home, 10 swimming pools, a 750-acre garden, some grassy area, and a small vineyard in the corner? Okay, hey, what about that 1,000 acres over there? Uh, A rainforest. Let's plant a rainforest. Okay, so there was no end. Grand opulence, incredible aesthetic beauty, building projects like you wouldn't believe. So he's building all of these things that he and others can enjoy. They can walk around reflecting and contemplating chess moves and geometry problems. Binge drinking and comedy at massive parties wasn't cutting it anymore, so maybe a little highbrow culture will. And some of these things that Solomon built can still be seen today. The pools of Solomon, for example. There are hundreds of them still in existence. They're massive pools. And there are several buildings and gardens that he's given credit for that are still around today. So it seems these pursuits were a bit more refined, but still the result in the end was the same. It was empty. It was vanity. It's all built up and set up. So now he goes on to explain, now that I have it all, how shall it be enjoyed? Verse 7, I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the children of man. A life of absolute ease, where Solomon literally did nothing for himself at all. I had slaves, I got slaves for my slaves. I woke up when I wanted, I ate what I wanted, and somebody else cooked it for me and fed it to me. They put my clothes on me, they cleaned my house, they bathed my body. So Solomon sat back and he simply watched it all happen around him. He literally did nothing. And he also had a cattle ranch and a horse ranch with more animals than anyone had ever owned before. 
So he's pointing out the reality that he had everything you could possibly imagine and took full advantage of his wealth and power and popularity. He goes on, oh, and I stored up gold and silver and all the treasures of the land. And when I heard music I liked, I didn't buy the album or download it on iTunes. I bought the band and they came to my home and played for me whenever I desired. And so there was, as is often the case for us, no silence in Solomon's life. Interestingly, we too often seek peace through eliminating the idea of a moment's peace. Solomon, through the greatest of live musicians, sought some sort of meaning. Us, oftentimes, through car stereos or earbuds. But it's all with the same result. Because meaning and purpose and joy are not acoustical manners. And so he goes beyond that. Oh, I also had concubines. I had some of them too. Yeah, he sure did. 300 to be exact. Along with 700 wives. He had a thousand women running around his houses. He was a man with absolute, uninhibited sexual experience. One woman didn't satisfy, so he got another. And guess what? Same thing. So he got more and more and more. A thousand women running around, all for his sexual fulfillment. No satisfaction. It did not bring ultimate joy. Verse 9, so I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. I love this verse. He's basically saying, I became a pretty popular guy. (laughs) You think? You're throwing parties every single night with the best food and wine. Yeah, probably somebody wanted to hang out with you. But notice at the end of this, he says, my wisdom remained with me. So in all that Solomon did, he knew what he was doing. Probably much unlike us, he realized all along his goal and his focus was to find meaning and lasting pleasure. And while that may be the thing that we are doing, it's not constantly replaying to us that that is our pursuit. Verse 10, And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure. For my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. Solomon sought out any and every pleasure that he could find, and he left nothing undone. If it felt good or if it looked good, Solomon was all over it. And notice, he doesn't write, I hated it. It was really a drag. No, he writes, my heart found pleasure in all my toil. In other words, it was good while it lasted. But that's the problem. It doesn't last. Nothing good ultimately came of it. His only reward was the momentary pleasure of his toil. 
Verse 11, Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. Those who seek earthly pleasure will never find pleasure to keep. In the end, it's all a bunch of nothing. When the band stopped and the party ended, everyone sobered up and stopped hiding behind a laugh. Solomon saw that it had no profit. To the worldly man, Solomon had it all. But in it all, he saw nothingness. So let's get real with this for a minute and then we'll be done. Ecclesiastes has already been written. So if you are seeking to find pleasure and meaning and happiness in something that this world offers, a job promotion, new possessions, faster car, more adventurous spouse, more money, whatever it is, look no further. Stop experimenting. It has already been done and it doesn't work. It does not work. Most of you probably know of the author Ernest Hemingway. He didn't heed the wisdom of Ecclesiastes to say the least. He was one of the most hedonistic men of our time. He drank constantly. He was married four different times. And he gambled much of his fortune and mainly just wasted a lot of time. Now, in his book... The Old Man in the Sea, which I think is punishment to make anyone read, he wrote about a fisherman hold, uh, hauling in a huge fish after a long, painful, 75-page struggle. And man, it's painful. But in the end, he gets it to the shore only to find it is mostly devoured by sharks. Now, the old man in the sea is Hemingway's writing about his own life. He pulled and he dragged and he pulled and he dragged and he sought for everything. And in the end, when he finally got to the end of it, it was all devoured. There was nothing to it. And so it all ended when he shot himself in the head in 1961. See, hedonistic pursuits do not satisfy. They do not satisfy under the sun. So back to my original point. Why do men do these things? Why did Solomon do all that he did? Because all of us, every single one of us, without exception, is wired for pleasure. It's not a bad thing. But the problem is, as C.S. Lewis wrote, we are far too easily pleased. So the problem is not pleasure-seeking. The problem is not seeking pleasure hard enough because we're seeking it in all of the wrong places. Solomon got to the end of all that he could pursue to find pleasure in. He toiled in all that he could, and he said, in the end, all of it was vanity. The difference between him and us is that he had abundant resources to do it. 
So I'm fearful for us that we not spend this life chasing our tails round and round after the thing that we assume will make us happy forever, only to eventually give out and die running on the ever-turning treadmill of life. I don't want to see that for any of us. The first question of the Westminster Shorter Catechism is, what is the chief end of man? Most of you know it. The answer, to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. That's our purpose. Where do we place our joy? Where is satisfaction found? Where is this pleasure that we are wired for? Where does it all come to be fulfilled? When we enjoy God above all others. Look, here's, here's the deal. Pay close attention here because this is the counterbalance to everything. God has given us a lot of great things to enjoy in this life. But if we are seeking to find our lasting joy in those things and not in God, we will, without fail, come up woefully short. That longing for pleasure in all of us is a longing for lasting enduring, persevering satisfaction. And that is only found in Jesus Christ. In John chapter 4, Jesus meets with the woman at the well in Samaria and he asks her for a cup of water. And he tells her, I'm going to drink this water, but I will be thirsty again. You drink this water, you will be thirsty again. But if you drink what I am offering you, you will never thirst again. The constant thirst for pleasure is quenched in Jesus Christ. So if, if you're not a Christian, or if you think you are and you keep running back to the water fountain, the question is, how long are you going to do it? How long? How long are you going to take in what doesn't satisfy, thinking that just maybe it might? It won't. It won't. No matter how much you buy, no matter how much you drink, no matter how much you have, no matter how much you work, no matter how much you strive for things and promotions and places, none of which in and of themselves are evil. But when you're seeking your pleasure in these things, they will come up very, very empty. So don't fight pleasure. Pleasure is not the problem. Where you're seeking to find it maybe is. Psalm 37.4 says, Delight yourself. In other words, find pleasure in. Seek your joy in the Lord. What's the result? He will give you the desires of your heart. And so the plea for all of us, stop pursuing pleasure in all that the world offers. It's empty. It's vain. But rather, we seek our pleasure, our fulfillment, our lasting joy in Christ alone. He is all satisfying. He is all sufficient. And He has purchased our pleasure 
You get that? He's purchased our pleasure. That we not, when we are in Christ, we not live this life in frivolous pursuits. We not live this life under the burden of seeking to find purpose and meaning in stuff. We not live this life empty and broken and unfulfilled because we constantly turn to Him who offers everlasting water, everlasting bread, everlasting life. And so the call for all of us is to examine our lives. What am I finding my hope in? What am I placing my joy in? And the question for some of us might be, why isn't it producing results? I would submit to you because it's not Christ. And so in just a minute, we're going to partake of the Lord's Supper. We're going to join one another at the table. We need this. We absolutely need this to join our hearts together, to participate with Christ in what He has given to us by His body and by His blood for our joy. It's for our joy. Why did Christ endure what He endured? The book of Hebrews tells us He did it for the joy that was set before Him. What is that? That we would be called sons and daughters of the Most High God. That is something to find our joy in. That is what we are wired for. And I pray to God that if any of us are here today and are not seeking our pleasure in the all-satisfying, all-sufficient Christ, that God would break our hearts and mold us into Christ followers today, and that we would be awakened from the dead and given new life in Him. Let's pray together. Father, thank You. Thank You that we need not run on the treadmill of dissatisfaction. That we need not continuously spin our wills to get and to have and to love and to hold only in the end to see it come up empty and fail. Thank you for Christ. Thank you that we can be satisfied in Him alone. Thank you that you would set our eyes not on things and people and places, but most ultimately on him. That our lives can be set on eternity and that we would find meaning in all that we do because Eternity with Christ awaits. 
And so, Lord, I pray. I pray that you help us to enjoy that which you have given us in this life as a gift from you, but not as gods unto themselves. Help us to look beyond, to use them as a means to look beyond to the giver, to you who satisfies fully. Father, if there is anyone in here right now who is seeking to find pleasure in something that is produced in this world, I pray, God, that you help them to see the frivolous nature of their pursuit because it will fail. Help them to see their need for Christ and help them to run to the cross. And I pray, God, that you help each and every one of us to do that. Because while we are in Christ, we are still broken. We still have sin. We still have our flesh. And I pray, God, that you help us to fight it with all of our might. That we not cling to stuff. We cling to Christ. Give us that great passion. Give us that great desire and conviction. And help us to take inventory of our lives. That when we lay down to rest, we know that we are resting in Christ. And that whatever we do to matter, tomorrow has meaning and purpose, not because of what it is, but because we do it unto Christ. Because as we pass through this world as aliens... As we pass through as a vapor, as a mist in this short life, that everything that we do that brings glory to God has meaning, has purpose. And so help us, O Lord, to look to Christ and live. In Jesus' name, amen.